Welcome to the Academic Veterinarian Podcast with Dr. Nuno Carrero, where we explore career opportunities and discuss contemporary topics within the field of veterinary and animal science. Right. Welcome, everyone, to the show. I'm so excited for today's show. My guest today is Dr. Jennifer Chatfield. Uh, she's a double-boarded veterinary specialist. She's a diplomat of both the American College of Zoological Medicine and the American College of Veterinary Preventative Medicine. She co-hosts the number one veterinary podcast, Vet Candies in Other News. She's an extremely engaging speaker, lecturing all over the country on a wide range of topics from zoo medicine to policy impacts on global wildlife conservation and zoonotic diseases. This and much more is what makes her one of the world's most interesting veterinarians. So excited to have her on the show. I'd um, like to give her a warm welcome to Dr. Jennifer Chatfield. Hey, thanks so much for that. I'm super excited. I'm super excited. Um, it's so rare that um, as practitioners, we get the opportunity to talk to undergraduates or pre-veterinary students. Um, and, and I love it. I love it. So thanks so much for having me on. It's great to have you on, especially for that reason. Uh, Dr. Jen, it's obvious that for those that know you and follow your work, that you're passionate about what you do and you're dedicated to educating a wide spectrum of audiences. Um, so I do appreciate you taking the time to speak to our listeners that are just now beginning to explore career options in veterinary medicine and a recurrent theme on the Academic Veterinarian Podcast is that there's no one path to becoming a veterinarian. So with that, could you uh, start by sharing how you first became interested in veterinary medicine? Oh, sure, sure. Um, <clears throat> so I, I guess I can't really remember really ever having kind of like a, a burning interest in veterinary medicine, I did come from um, an ag background, but um, but one with kind of non-traditional species, so birds and um, stuff like that. And so <clears throat> my brother, because I, you know, I have a twin brother who's also a veterinarian, as it turns out. Um, wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but but in our but we grew up kind of um, without too much veterinary influence because. Um, you know, a lot of veterinarians won't work on something that's not like a dog or a cat. And so, um, so it was, it was interesting The probably the first time that I thought about becoming a vet was, um, we had a, a veterinarian who used to come to our house after in the evening. Um, and he was a pioneering, um, zoo vet actually. Um, he has since passed away. It was, um, Dr. Fletcher, Kenneth Fletcher. And <clears throat> he would, develop new surgical techniques and stuff, you know, kind of practicing on the, the birds we had, and then we'd give him supper. <laughs> right? Yeah. Good exchange. And, yeah. Right. It, it was a fair exchange from our point of view. I'll tell you what. And so, uh, this one time he was, uh, developing a new surgical technique for pinioning, um, a bird and pinioning is the term we use to describe, um, any procedure that, uh, uh, kind of uh, fixes it where the bird cannot fly. So they would not be full flighted, which means you don't have to have netting over the top of this giant pasture that you may have large birds in, et cetera. So, right. so anyway, so there he was. And um, he, I was peering over his shoulder, like my, you know, 11 year old self. And we were on the back porch and uh, he hit like what is 
now I know the only major blood vessel that runs in a bird's wing. And of course, like blood squirted over his head. It's like over me. And he reaches back and he gets my little hand and he, and he, you know, put, uses my hand and puts pressure on the, where he cut it. And he says, here, hold that. And before I knew it, my mom came around and said, I'm going to go ahead and do that, honey. You go inside and sit down. I had turned like green. I was going to pass out, you know, and I didn't really know it anyway. So I was like, oh, well, I'll never be a vet. Move on. Um, <laughs> kind of ruled it out. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so anyway, um, so a couple other things happened, but not, you know, another veterinarian when I was in high school got me real excited at a career day and I ran up you know, after she finished her presentation and said, Oh my gosh, this sounds so fantastic. Can I come volunteer at your clinic? And she said, no. Oh boy. Double whammy. So now (laughs) you're you're kind of feeling woozy after the bird incident. So you try second time talking to a vet. It was kind of like, no, not really. That's two strikes. And and still you're a veterinarian today. I know it's incredible. Like the universe is persistent, right? Like if this is what you're supposed to do. And I moved on because at that point, I mean, I, I don't get too excited about negative feedback. <laughs> like, right, that's good. That's a good yeah. character. Yeah. And it, it was truly negative. I mean, that was like a hard pass. It was like, no, it was like a, you know, um, a wall of no followed by a moat of no all encircled with a fence of no, like it was like, no, no way, no how. Anyway. So I go on, go on to undergrad and I'm, you know, tooling along and I was actually a math major. I didn't have anything to do with life sciences. Um, and so, so what I was did, your thought as far as the math, mm-hmm. what was your initial thought when you, when you got into the math major? It was easy. Wow. Easy. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well I start, so I started, I actually started undergrad at a university before I graduated from high school. Uh, and I started by taking, um, math classes at the university. So I started with, um, calculus one and calculus two, and then I took calculus three and then, then I, I graduated from high school and then started into advanced calculus and, you know, Diffie Q and some other stuff. And so, so I was, you know, getting a math degree and I got three, I, you know, I was a couple years in and, uh, I decided, cause I was going to grad, I was going to be really close to graduating in three years. And, and I thought, well, I'm going to be a flight attendant. I mean, that seems reasonable. Yeah, right? certainly. Yeah. <laughs> From from math whiz to yeah um, yeah Yeah. well I was fluent in German at that time oh awesome Um, that would come in handy for sure and I wanted to see interesting places and so uh, I knew like we had a friend my mom had a friend who was a flight attendant as a second career and she was um, a foreign language speaker and so she jumped right on the international routes and I thought well that's great so. Then uh, my folks were like, yeah, 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 that sounds interesting. Why don't you just fill out this paperwork, you know? Paperwork, yeah. For vet school. For vet school, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so wait, and, so wait, so wait, yeah. now, now now, you have to explain because how was, what were they thinking about, you know, wh- wh- how, how did they think that vet school might be a good path for you? Well, if you look at the, from the outside looking in at my life, it would be incredible to think I was going to be anything else. Because I grew up with so many animals. Um, I mean, we, you know, we had a farm. Like, I think every little girl, like eight years old and under, I loved every barn cat. Um, I would sneak them into the house. I loved every baby animal. Um, You know, when my brother and I were about 12, we started um, 
I mean, well, we always had chores, but but one of the things that we had to do was we would hand raise a lot of parrots and macaws and cockatoos. So we'd have to feed those. We had, you know, all kinds of stuff before it was cool. Like we had emus and rias and ostrich before it was cool. So we had to do all of that. So I grew up kind of surrounded by animals, but no veterinarians. And so it was... Uh, if you were outside looking in, you would be like, well, like, what is this crazy stuff you're talking about, Jennifer? A flight attendant, math, come on. Like, you're going to be a veterinarian. Um, so so my, your parents knew best, as most parents maybe do. <laughs> well, they didn't, they didn't push super hard. Um, right. They said, just don't close the door, right? And, and I think that's probably the best approach to any undergraduate program is – you want to, when you finish your undergraduate program, you want to have left open as many doors and windows as possible because things change. Oh, things change all the time. Um, so that's what I had, right? And so I, I also, by, when my parents, you know, in my mind said, hey, how about, you know, maybe think about this, you know, think about vet school. Uh, I had, I had done two full-time years of of undergraduate work. And that was the very first year of the VEMCAS program. Yeah. Okay. Which now I think everyone is familiar with. It is. Yeah. It's probably mm -hmm. the main way that students apply to vet school. Mm -hmm. Most vet schools use it, not all. Right. And, and, but it was really new then, right? Because it's the first year. So, well, it's like a uniform application. And the, you know, we jokingly, as we started to explore filling it out, I called it the first weed out right? Because it's really, it's really hard. And at that time, I mean, your the listeners can't see us, but I don't feel like I'm ancient, but this is going to make me sound really ancient. I was typing it on an actual typewriter. Um, typewriter. So, wow. <laughs> right. I know. I remember those. I remember those. Okay. Thank goodness. I mean, don't <laughs> say, wow. Now they're going to think I'm like 80. I'm not 80. No, 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 um, no. I graduated vet school in this millennium. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Yeah. Okay. Very, very good. So um, anyway, so filling that out when you couldn't have white out, you couldn't have mistakes or whatever. It's just irritating because imagine all those tables of prerequisite courses and everything. So I ended up having to do a lot of the life science requirements in that one year because I'd had like no biology, no chemistry. Um, right. So you were like third year undergraduate student mm -hmm. math major. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, you're kind of changing that mindset that you yep. want to pursue and, and become a veterinarian. And I think this is a good place to point out that there really is no specific major that's required to apply to vet school. Right. Um, I often advise students that, you know, think about what your other passions, you mm -hmm. know, think about what else you, you could be doing or see yourself doing uh, besides becoming a veterinarian. And that might be a good major choice for you. Mm -hmm. um, so, for example, like if you love history and you can see yourself as a high school history teacher, mm -hmm. hey, why not go ahead? Be that history major as long as you have those prerequisite courses out of the way, which I'm sure is what you started to do at that point. You know, you can still qualify and apply to vet school. And we actually in my class, 
Um, we had a girl who she stood up at orientation. So the first year of vet school there at, at, when I went to Texas A&M, there were like three days of orientation for first years. Um, because then they don't call you freshmen, right? In vet school, they start calling you something different, just like law school. Right. Um, so for, so you had the three days of orientation and one of them, um, you stand up and say, say something about yourself. So this girl stood up. I'll never forget it. Her name is Megan. She stood up and she said, my name is Megan. And, uh, I'm excited to be here and that I got in because I was a history major in undergrad and I found out my dad was right and you can't get a job. (laughs) (laughs) So Uh, she goes to vet school instead. (laughs) Yeah, Um, I think we can probably find uh, lots of examples in in both our classes of, mm -hmm. uh, you know, classmates that had majors that are not typically associated uh, with veterinary medicine, like animal science or Mm -hmm. pre-vet or even biology. Mm -hmm. Um, Certainly those English majors, history majors. I know had a couple of engineering students in mm-hmm. uh, in my class, and I'm sure also some second career people, some second career classmates, right? Oh, yeah. No, no. The, um, that's the other thing, too, is you're never too old to go to vet school, right? Like my brother. Absolutely. Um, in his class, um, they he had a classmate when they graduated from vet school. She was 65. Yeah. I think it might have been a fourth career for her. I'm not really sure. But anyway, but so it doesn't it doesn't really matter where you are in life. I think the clear thing that that you want to make sure that your kind of history of your, your like your life history does is demonstrate your, that you are capable of completing that DVM program, that curriculum successfully. You know, and that, and I think that's probably all that schools are looking for, right? Like they don't want to set somebody up to fail. No one likes that. So uh, whether that's through multiple successful careers before you apply, or if it's just um, really performing well in your academic record, um, if you have focused on your undergraduate work. And I think that's the kind of the key thing that um, it starts with good grades. I mean, it starts with good grades. Um, so for me, when I got to that point when I was like, oh, I, maybe I'll become a veterinarian. The good thing was that door wasn't closed because no matter what you do in life, you should strive to, to be the best at it. And so because I had done well academically in whatever courses I was in, all I needed to do was go get those remaining prerequisites and do well. And then they took me. So yeah, I think- good. That's that's good. That's good overall life advice. You know, whatever you're doing, mm-hmm. just 100 percent, 110 percent, do your best. Mm-hmm. I certainly enjoyed. Uh, just to go back a little bit, I enjoyed having those classmates with that different life experience. I really did because I was okay. I'm just gonna say it. I was 23 years old when mm-hmm. I started vet school, which is kind of like the average age for a vet student, but the age range is is quite wide. Oh, yeah. And many of my classmates were second career. We had engineers. Mm-hmm. I think uh, one of them was um, interior designer. We had software engineers. We had all these second career people. And yeah. I just, I, I really looked at them and they just set such a good example of how to conduct yourself, um, of how to interact with people and how to lead the class, honestly. Mm-hmm. And I really learned a lot and it just made a much more rich experience uh, for me in vet school. Well, it's very helpful because... Um, there's, so there's a lot of folks who get to vet school and they've been the big fish in their pond, especially academically, right? Like, so they've either made, I mean, there are 4.0s. There are people who have a science undergraduate degree in vet school and they have never made anything but an A, ever. I mean, think about that for a minute, ever. 
Not like, yeah. oh, I got a B because I had that one professor, right? Like, nope, didn't matter. They just, you know, crushed it with a, and then they get to vet school. And I'm going to tell you, vet school is not like undergrad. <laughs> nope, not at all. Yeah. Right? I don't know about you, but I was like, it was the wall. If vet school was the wall, I left like a Jennifer shaped cutout on the <laughs> wall as I smashed into it. Right. It was, it's very different. And it's very different for those students who've been so successful because, I mean, I'm sure it happens. It's incredibly rare for somebody to come through vet school with a 4.0. I'm sure it happens, right? But I don't know of any of it. So it's very helpful to have people around you who have seen those sorts of experiences themselves when you find yourself not having the same sort of success. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you have to really, in order to make vet school more enjoyable for yourself. Mm -hmm. You have to really have a mindset change yeah. um, that not getting an A is not failure. Right. You know, don't concentrate on that grade, but concentrate on yourself and your self-improvement and where you mm -hmm. are. And mm -hmm. are you, are you learning? Um, are you engaging yourself in the material? Uh, but don't focus so much on the A, you know, let right. it go. Right. I mean, and that and that's the thing. So before you get into vet school, I mean, you need to make A's, right? I mean, that's just what it is. You don't right. have to make all A's, but but what were you doing in like instead? Because it's a choice. And if I choose to take 26 semester credit hours of all science because I'm trying to cram it in, but then I don't do well, I make a bunch of C's, maybe a couple A's, that's a bad choice. That's not like a good indicator. But if you cram it all in, if you do those same 26 semester credit hours of all science and you make mostly A's and one or two B's, well, that's reasonable. But if you took six credit hours and you made a B, mm, that's not quite the same thing. Um, unless you have some other aspect of your life happening, right? Like, so it all depends. And I think that's the hardest thing for undergraduates is it all depends. Everybody doesn't have the exact, there's no like formula, you know, necessarily. Right. And you can't predict what your life is going to be, you know, when you're to the next, because if you, if you're, if you're very good at accurately predicting that you should move to Las Vegas, I'll be your new bestie and we'll make us a pot of money. Right. Like nice. you, you just can't predict that. Right. If we could go back in time mm -hmm. when you were third year undergraduate student. Okay. Any advice for someone that might might be in that same situation? You know, they're finding themselves in their third year. Yeah. You know, they've gone through two years of undergrad mm -hmm. and now they're really thinking about a, a total different path. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, what would you say to them? Anything encouraging uh, oh. to them at that point? Oh, I mean, a hundred percent. So the, the, then that's, that's the thing. So you, you can change your own path anytime you like. And, and I think the sooner that people recognize that in life, kind of the better, because the only person in charge of your life is you. And the only part, no one will care as much as you about what happens in your pathway of life, right? Because it's not happened to them. So if you, if you are choosing at that point, so let's say you're, you're a business major and you decide, I want to go to vet school instead. There's, there's so many ways to get there. You could complete your business degree and graduate and then register for and take those other prerequisites that you probably didn't get, like all the biology, all the chemistry, biology and stuff, and apply that year after undergrad. Because that may be the right thing for you to do. Or 
if you're in that third year, abandon your business major and start taking those prereqs. Because the other thing that's also, I think people don't realize is I'm unaware of any vet school program that requires an undergraduate degree. Yeah, I know some of them definitely don't. So yeah, I don't um, know of any that actually do. They just require a substantial amount of prerequisite courses be completed. And usually like along the way, you fill in, you know, enough hours to be a full-time student that you get a degree. I mean, that's usually how it happens. So if you're starting your third year of undergrad and you decide, yeah, I don't, I don't want to do that. You can, you can change. You can change. Now, it doesn't mean that that change won't be without consequence, right? So you want to make sure that you have kind of, I say I try to listen when the universe attempts to redirect me because um, I, right. like, I like for it to whisper instead of hitting <laughs> me over the head. Um, so take any of those kind of lessons as you reflect back on experiences and say, you know, uh, I wasn't very good at that. I didn't really like it. I don't think I'll do that. Or your lesson might be, you know, I didn't do very well at it because I just didn't try as hard as I could have. So maybe, maybe I'll try again. And this time I'll really, really work at it and see what it, what comes of it. Um, I think that's the key um, to, to doing well in whatever it is you end up doing. Right. Um, well, I, I think you hit a lot of key points. Uh, which is, you know, I think students can get discouraged, especially when they're in, in their undergraduate um, mm -hmm. years, because that is a time of exploration. And yep. we often are asking 17 and 18 year olds to decide what to do for the rest of their lives. Which is crazy and, town. I mean, which is, it is very crazy town. And there's no need for them to stress out about it. But when you're in that moment, mm -hmm. it's hard. It's hard because you feel the pressure. You feel mm -hmm. the pressure of, you know, society, so to speak, on you. It's like, okay, I have to decide what I want to do for the rest of my life. Yep. So my advice is really to say, you've got your whole life ahead of you. Um, you don't have to know all the answers right now. It's okay to explore. Vet school will always be there. Yeah, it's not it, going away. I'm pretty it, sure it, that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not going away. You know, do your best in the moment. Mm -hmm. um, always do your best in the moment. Like you said before, don't close doors, mm -hmm. you know, be open to new possibilities. And if that path leads you to eventually um, apply to vet school, wanting to become a veterinarian, then you'll get there. Uh, just don't, don't make a tight timeline. There's no, there's no need for that. Do what works best for you. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think it's interesting too, um, the concept of timelines, right? So when you get to be you know, 18, 19, 20, it's true. Your whole life was really scheduled out for you with timelines, right? But then you kind of enter grown-up land. And even when you're an undergrad, you're living in grown-up land. You just might not realize it. Um, those timelines become to some degree irrelevant because, I mean, who's setting that timeline for you besides you? Now, right. there may be expectations, right? But I think it's very helpful to 
um, sort of uh, sit back. And I ha- I don't like that analogy because that implies that we're not making forward progress, right? We sit back. So I, I actually like to say like float above, like an out-of-body experience. Like just imagine like looking down on your life and you and thinking, okay, so so what's important here right now? And the the like what I would say the best answer almost always is what's important is that I finish whatever it is I'm doing as strongly as possible to put myself in the best position possible to make the next choice. Right. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. And I think that's a constant cycle throughout your life. Yes. You know, it, it never ends. It never it never stops. It never ends. Right. And so people frequently ask me, they're like, do you like being a veterinarian? And um, I, I have several answers for that. Number one, I'm not sure yet. Right. I've been one for a while, but you're still checking it out. I mean, I could do something different. Right. Um, and number two, I'm a little biased. Um, I haven't really been anything else. So I don't have a good comparison because I didn't have a career before I became a veterinarian. But from my perspective, gosh, there's just not any better vocational degree to get, especially as a female, right? And especially in the United States. And so, you know, I, that, that's my two answers. Um, but it's really unfair because I've, I haven't been anything else. They should, they should go ask like some of my classmates, like one was like a chemical engineer for four or five years before they became a veterinarian. I have another friend who was, a um, an an environmental, uh, scientist before, uh, going to vet school. So ask them, (laughs) I haven't really had any other career. (laughs) (laughs) They can make the comparison. Yeah. Um, so obviously you got those prerequisite courses done mm-hmm. and you yep. attended vet school at mm-hmm. Texas A&M, right? Yep, yep, yep. So tell us more. Tell us more. Um, vet school wise. Mm-hmm. Like, like any piece of advice I would have for undergrads who are like wondering, what are we getting out of undergrad that we're going to need? Because there's a lot of conversation about all these prerequisites that are required, right? Um, right. And what I think is interesting is that, again... Just believe, just take this like on blind, blind faith. Vet school courses are not the same as undergraduate courses. And so when you get to vet school, by far the most valuable thing you could have learned in undergrad, no matter your field of study, is learning how you learn, how you study to be successful, to um, assimilate so much knowledge in a short time. Because the, the students that I was in school with, if they had figured out in undergrad how they learn and how to study effectively, they were so much farther ahead of me because I didn't have to study, right? I didn't even go to, this is terrible. I didn't even go to class in undergrad. I didn't have to, right? Which, okay, people can be like, well, and be upset about that and think it's not a good plan. It's not a good plan. But it was just the case. I, I never had to study until I got to vet school. And I, I don't think you're alone in that. Um, I actually just had a conversation with some vet students that are now uh, pre- former undergraduate uh, students of mine that are now in vet school. Mm-hmm. And they said the same thing. They said, you know, we didn't have to really study as much as we do now. And so even even now in vet school, they've had to learn mm-hmm. and relearn how um, to best study while in vet school and change up so, those study habits. Right. And, and um, it truly is a skill to 
figure out how your brain needs to have information delivered to it. Um, and I don't mean like visual, auditory, kinesthetic, or um, read, write, or whatever, those learning uh, preferences. I don't mean that. I mean, um, how, how do you have to roll it over in your brain to make that information your own? Um, and for me, I didn't learn that. And I got to tell you, it's a hard curve <laughs> when you get to yeah. vet school to sort that out. Um, so if you can exit your undergraduate career, understanding that about yourself, you are not only are you light years ahead for vet school, but for almost anything else you want to do, you're light years ahead. What was your veterinary experience like? in preparation for applying to vet school? Um, yeah, beyond being fired for hemostasis or hemostatic pressure application, right? right? Being, being like totally replaced immediately by my mom when I was um, like 10 or 12. Um, so uh, I had very little, <laughs> which is terrible um, because, because it makes everybody upset. I think I had worked two or three Saturday mornings at a sleepy um, small animal practice in a itty bitty town. Um, that's it. That was it. Mm -hmm. Um, so, I mean, within that, that time and experience, mm -hmm. do you feel like you really got to know what a veterinarian did? I do did understand what a veterinarian did. And actually what I think was even more important, I had some concept of what a veterinarian could do because I am an animal person who accidentally became a veterinarian because animal people and veterinarians are two very different groups of people. And so, um, just kind of understanding what animals are, how to work with them, what they need to survive, what they need to thrive, um, and then recognizing what that looks like in, in veterinary practice or in agriculture, I think is the solid thing you're looking for. And it's that, that bit of, I guess, emotional maturity when you're in that situation, I think is what is necessary. I think that's all that that uh, kind of admissions folks are really looking for, um, because you can have thousands and thousands of hours working in a practice and still not get it, um, if that makes sense. Okay, yeah. And so it's not necessarily that that quantity. It's an intangible, right? It's a it's like a mature approach to these very. Um, important situations. And that's not important situations. Isn't really the right description, but, um, just recognizing what it is that you're doing and what it is that you're impacting, um, I think is important. Not understanding like, you know, uh, how to, how to give a shot or how to do this, but the, the considerations that go into giving or administering an injection. I think right. is what it is. So at that time, were there people that you were reaching out to um, to kind of mentor you and, and and give you more information that you were looking for? To some degree, because um, like anything else in my life, I was de deciding to that I, if I'm going to attempt it, then I want to be as successful as I can at it, which requires me using every resource at hand. Um, and even some that weren't at hand, <laughs> gathering them. So yeah, so I, I mean, I was talking to to all kinds of people, um, which I think you should do anyway, right? And I'm sure you do that. 
you know, right. re yep. reach out to people from all over um, for their perspective and then decide what your own is going to be. And so it doesn't, I don't think that makes you a lesser person or professional um, just because you're getting all kinds of input. So yeah, so I reached out to other folks. I reached out to veterinarians um, that I sort of knew. I reached out to veterinarians I didn't even know. And then I, you know, talked to other people um, outside of that, but who were involved in animal industry about it, right? Because they've, if they're older, they've encountered far more veterinarians than I have to find that out, um, to see what was necessary to be successful. You got to crowdsource, I guess, your information, right? Right. Exactly. And we do that, you know, as veterinarians now, you know, we're mm -hmm. always reaching out. Um, I've always worked in multi-doctor practices. And that's one thing I love about it is always having colleagues to go to and run mm -hmm. things by um, versus being a solo practitioner and still do that now, you know, whether I'm teaching or in or practicing. Um, anything else about that undergraduate experience you wanted to touch on before we move on? Yeah. So I, I there's a whole lot of people talking these days about all the prereqs, right? I, I'm sure you know, like you, you hear it, right? The philosophy of like, maybe we should decrease the amount of prerequisites and all that. I don't think there's a single one of the prerequisites that I completed that did not prove useful in my vet school path, right? Every single one of them. So it's really easy to dismiss some of the stuff that you think is um, more esoteric in the prereq list as not useful. Every single one of them was useful. Yeah, no, that's good advice. And I would say that um, students should look at what electives they're going to add on to it. You know, like I said, I, I had just had a conversation with vet students mm -hmm. and they touched on some courses that are not part of the prereqs, but they think were also very useful. Things like immunology, for example. Uh, it's, immunology as a standalone course is not always a prereq for vet schools. But right. It wasn't for me. Yeah. So very, but very useful. So I was thinking actually stuff like music appreciation. That's the kind of electives I oh, took. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. Which, which I loved because I mean, okay, it was an A and right now listeners stop chuckling and rolling your eyes thinking I was just looking to boost my GPA. At that point I had so many credit hours, like, you know, with a two hour music appreciation course was going to do Zippo for my GPA one way or the other. But, it was number one, super fun, and number two, really interesting, right? And it just allows you another avenue to explore how your brain functions for retaining that information. I mean, the history that went along with it, it was, it was just really interesting and proves useful on Jeopardy, so. Nice, yeah. So I took History of Jazz. See? Um, you see Which, what I'm telling you? I don't, I, yeah, I don't think I would have appreciated jazz as much as I do now if I had yeah. not taken that course in undergrad, for sure. Yeah. And I'll put on I'll put on jazz. We often listen to jazz while we're having dinner, my family and I. Yeah. And my two-year-old now, he knows to ask, ask Alexa for smooth jazz during what <laughs> during during dinner. So I, I, totally awesome. get, I totally get what you're saying. You know, like I said, undergrad is a time to explore. Yeah. Explore things that you know you never would think about. So yeah. history of jazz. Uh, uh, what else? I, I took a film class too. So See? those are and fun. You know what? Um, so what you're saying is is not wrong. There was just a paper that came out, and it's peer reviewed, so you know it's true. That um, looked at the type of music that was played in the OR during procedures on humans, and it turned out that um, 
smooth jazz. Like the, the, that's the thing that brought it to the front of my brain. Smooth jazz. Um, uh, there was there was one other category, um, and it was a type of jazz, but it, it wasn't smooth. But they called it something else. Um, actually, uh, patients had the best, fastest recovery when that was the um, what was played in the OR versus nothing like no music versus right. like you know eighties rock or hair bands or country or you know whatever they were picking. But it was smooth jazz and some other type of jazz. Anyway, so see, very useful. That makes me think about that in a whole different way See? now. That's right. I'm going to think about that. I'm going to think about that. In vet school, we had a neurosurgeon, veterinary neurosurgeon that mm-hmm. would play Bon Jovi. So, See? Hair yes. bands. Yeah. <laughs> well. But um, what they didn't, what they weren't able to isolate was the variable of, did the surgeon perform better, smoother, right? Yes. Or was it... Um, because we know, because they've done like EEGs and stuff during surgery, or was it some sort of stimulation for the uh, the patient undergoing the surgery, right? Some sort of neurostimulation while they were under. Anyway, they couldn't isolate that, but who cares? Smooth jazz. Smooth jazz all the way. <laughs> yeah. Big fan. So can we move on to um, after vet school? So what were your thoughts at graduation from vet school? What were you thinking as far as a career path within the profession itself? Yeah. Um, so I, uh, I was a zoo vet. Um, well, I, I not was, I'm still alive. I am I'm a zoo vet. A zoo vet. Yeah. Right. Um, and so when I graduated, uh, at A&M, so every, as, as listeners, I'm sure you guys know, if you've already started exploring vet school, every curriculum is different. <clears throat> and so at A&M at that time, your fourth year of vet school was 100% clinics. And so we used to say, oh, so for fourth year, you just play doctor all year. Um, and it was 12 months long. So you had a weekend between in May. So you finished third year on Friday. You had the weekend off and you started clinical rotations on Monday. And you were in two-week clinical rotations for the next 12 months. Um, and somewhere in there, you would take your national board. So um, I was fairly certain I was going to be a zoo vet. Uh, so much so that uh, my fourth year curriculum for uh, rotations, I wrote my own curriculum and pitched it to the dean. And uh, luckily, is that doesn't happen too often, but uh, it was accepted. So I left College Station, I think, like in August. So from May to August, I was there doing some required rotations, like anesthesia and a couple of surgery rotations and a handful of internal medicine and stuff. And then I left and I did, um, you know, six to eight week rotations at different major uh, parks. So I was kind of already starting that career path the moment that I left. And my first job out of school was as an associate vet at a at a zoo. However, when I first got out of school, I didn't have one job. I had like four, um, wow. because zoos uh, zoos in general don't, don't they don't pay the same as private practice because the veterinarian is not a revenue generator in that situation, right? They're a sink, and so. Um, but I knew that's what I wanted to do. But also, I had just learned how to do all this magic right? That's called medicine, right? Um, that is the magic. And so when you get out of school and I tell everyone who, even if they're thinking of kind of a non-clinical career path, do the magic at least 
you know, some, um, so that you, you really learn how to do the magic tricks. And so I would work during the day at the zoo and then I would leave the zoo at four or four 30, drive to the emergency practice that was foolish enough to hire me out of school. I would have like a couple hours of downtime, which sometimes I slept, sometimes I ate, sometimes I just vegged out and stared at the wall. And then I would start my emergency clinic shift at six, work all night and then go back to the zoo in the morning. And so I just right out of school just was doing a ton of medicine. I think that's excellent advice. Um, certainly, I you know I practiced for a solid seven years mm-hmm. uh, in mixed animal practice, doing emergencies. You know, like you said, kind of really put yourself in the trenches mm-hmm. and yep. and, um, and and learn that magic that you you were talking about before actually moving to academia because mm-hmm. that I, I have less time to practice now. Right, but I draw back on that experience all the time. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, now there's, so there's two tips for that, which are, um, you should uh, consider buying stock in Imodium AD before you start that. (laughs) Because when you get out of school, they throw you to the wolves, right? Um, Then uh, that can be, that can be tricky, which I'm sure was, did you feel that way when you like were first on call? Cause you're all by yourself on call. Yes. I mean, that, you're all by yourself. Um, I, I worked at a mixed practice in a very rural area of Virginia. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I was at a multi-doctor practice, I can tell you that after a month of being there, uh, the practice owners took a vacation and left me. That's what they all do. <laughs> yeah. And and you're like, what? Wait, I remember what? that. They took they took their, you know, it, it was a planned vacation. They take it at the mm-hmm. same time every year. But I was there by myself um, with also a very new vet. And I just remember the first G- GDV that I had GDV surgery. I don't I even do. like to say that out loud still. <laughs> no, <yeah. laughs> I don't want to call it to me. <laughs> yeah. So absolutely. It's like, oh, it's, it's, it can be nerve wracking for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, and that was the same thing I had, you know? Yeah. But it just makes you a much, I, I feel like I, I'm a much better veterinarian for it, honestly. Oh, yeah. I, and I don't know what you think about this, because I'm sure people ask you more than they ask me, actually, because you're you're in an academic situation. People say, well, you know, um, do you wish that you'd had somebody with you longer? Because my first shift at the emergency clinic, I was the only doctor on. So that was about two weeks out of vet school. Um, and I think like it doesn't matter if it had been six months, it had been, a mo- you know, a month, whatever. It doesn't matter when, how long out of vet school you are. The first time you're the only one on. It's the same thing. And so I like I encourage people. I'm like, nope, just jump off the cliff right into the deep end because it's not going to get better with age. Right. Just do yeah, it. Yeah, Just got to do it. Just mm-hmm. got to do it. There's no other way. You're just right. going to you're just going to have to do it. I totally yeah, you, can, you can put it off longer if you want. Right. You could do an internship. You could do a residency. Put it off longer. Doesn't matter. Still going to be the same when you have to do it. So number one, buy stock in Imodium. And number two, make sure your malpractice insurance is up to date. <laughs> <laughs> All great advice. Yeah. Um, can, can you just tell us real quick when you decided, okay, I'm going to be a zoo vet. You uh-huh. have that experience right out of school. Because mm-hmm. uh, I think this is something that students that are just exploring the profession and even sometimes clients, they don't um, necessarily understand what it means to be a board certified veterinarian specialist uh-huh a specialist mm-hmm. yeah yeah um i'm actually i'm glad you bring that up because uh, it kind of gives opportunity to address two things number one is um specializing so um the specialty boards in veterinary medicine um are are interesting i never considered 
becoming boarded, board certified in anything. I mean, I had essentially retired from full-time clinical work before I decided to become boarded in anything. Um, Because what you should consider is, do I need to have that certification to to get the position I want? And in Zoom medicine, the answer is no. Mm -mm. Um, Now, that's different if you want to do something like if you want to be a cardiologist. If you want to be a veterinary cardiologist, then you need to get that board certification. It means that that's all you want to do. So I discourage vet students and let alone undergraduate students from making that hard and fast determination in your brain before you've explored everything else. And I think that's why a lot of those specialty boards require you to do a rotating internship. Right. So where you do all the departments instead of just focusing on I'm only going to do medicine. Nah. They usually make you do a rotating internship where you go through all the departments, including surgery, so that you really have a sense of what ha- not only what happens over there, but you didn't just pick this because of something whimsical. Right. It's really good advice because a lot of times when I first speak with undergrads, mm-hmm. they come to me and they say, I want to be an equine veterinarian. Right. So should I should I be an equine major, or you know, yeah, uh, I, I want to be a zoo vet, and, and I feel like I always try to make them think about um, broader options. Mm-hmm. And I I describe vet school like when you get to vet school, it's still a time of exploration. It's still oh, a general yeah. degree. And that's yep. what's great about the degree. It's general. Yes. And you can do whatever you want. Yep. Um, within the field with that degree, so I totally appreciate the advice to kind of keep your options open mm-hmm. and and think about do I do I need the specialization in order mm-hmm. to get the job I think that's even really great advice well and the other thing is so like even in undergrad god it would have never occurred to me to major in anything that was species specific of any kind because the thing is so so like let's say that you are because um a lot of a lot of students apply to vet school who have kind of a species specific focus on horses or on cattle. Um, and I mean, we take the same licensing exam, right? So like when you get to vet school, I don't care if you think there's no good reason for cats to be on the planet or not. You got to learn cats and you're going to yep. have to work with cats in vet school or pigs. That's my favorite one. Cause I love pigs, right? Just fair warning. I love pigs. Um, I even did some work on a pig farm, right? And 8% of the national licensing exam for veterinarians is pig questions. It's pigs. So whether you like them or not, you have to, you have to know enough about them. And I think it's also helpful to remember that I don't care if like, you know, your DNA is part horse, the general public views all veterinarians largely the same. I mean, they just do. Now that's the general public. If you've had like an encounter where your dog had a massive heart problem. Okay. You know, cardiologists are different, right? But most people think that we're all the same. They're all the same. Yeah. But we certainly have so many different roles that we play, Mm -hmm. you know, in, in, in our society. The, Board certification process, I think sometimes that's confusing for students and yeah. it often inv- involves a residency. 
Mm-hmm. Is that right? And yep. so can you just describe what, what is a residency versus sure. an internship, which, which you described right. what an internship was versus residency? Right. So, um, so it's actually largely similar, similar to human medicine and not every board specialty requires an internship and residency. Um, but a lot of the traditional ones do so internal medicine, um, and within internal medicine, there's all these other subspecialties like cardiology or neurology. Um, and so, or gosh, gastroenterology. So, uh, when you first get out of school, if you want to specialize, you start with an internship and that's usually rotating and that's for a year. So an internship is usually much shorter than a residency as you know, the terms might imply. Um, what you should also bear in mind is that, um, you are a graduated doctor and you'll be called doctor in an internship, but you're not the big doctor. Um, you're not necessarily always responsible for the cases. You have someone overseeing what you're doing. That's the, why it's called an internship. You're still training. And so you don't get paid much. When I say much, I mean like 24, 25,000. So you should bear that in mind. Um, and then when you finish your internship, you apply for a residency. A lot of people don't get matched. So it's through this like central program where they match you, um, where you say, oh, I'd like to go here, there, and yonder. And then if any of those programs pick you, that's great. And if they don't, you go somewhere else or you decline. Oh, don't do that. So <laughs> you <might get laughs> don't stuck. decline. Don't decline. Don't decline the match. Take no, it. No. If, if you, if you apply for a match, you got to take it. Um, and so, uh, if, if you don't match, then you're faced with a choice. Do I abandon this, this path, go into regular practice, um, kind of be the big doctor, or do I do another internship? And a lot of people do another internship. So you're doing again, the same thing in a different place. And then you apply again. And if you don't get matched again, you're faced with the same choice, right? Okay. So then you get picked for an internship. Internship is usually three years, three years, and it's much more focused. Like internship is still pretty broad. It's just broader clinical experience while being supervised by a specialist usually, right? But a residency is when you've really picked, you focused. So many people change during their internship. They're like, oh, I want to be a radiologist. So I do my internship. No, no, I don't want to just sit in a dark room and read x-rays. I want that contact with clients. So they say, oh, so I'm going to be a surgeon. And they're like, wow, yeah, doing surgery all day, every day and nothing else. I don't want to do that. Okay. I want to be an anesthesiologist because I still want to be in surgery, but I want to be the one, you know, putting them under and then waking them up. Right. That's the key. Anyone can knock them out. It's waking them up. That's tricky. And so your residency is only that for three years. Yeah, I can I can relate to that because I thought I wanted to be a you know a board certified specialist in in surgery, mm-hmm. uh, and I love surgery and I still do it. Um, mm-hmm. But I didn't like it enough to do it every single day, and that's my main my main work. So I, I really enjoy general practice and, yeah. and meeting clients, like you said. So. And surgeons still meet clients, right? I have a friend. I didn't realize really what a surgeon's life looked like until I had a good friend. Well, again, I shouldn't use past tense. Um, I have a good friend who is a surgeon and a very good one at a very high level. Um, and he literally goes from OR to OR. Like he back, like he finishes one um, and he gets it to the point where uh, the skin can be closed by a technician 
you know, a trained surgical technician. They just, you know, whip the skin close. He's closed all the major cavities or tissues. And so then he says, I'm out, you know, pulls his stuff off just like in human land. And he goes out the door and a technician meets him right there and says, great, your next one's already on the table because it's already been knocked out, intubated, and it's it's prepped and ready. You don't do the scrubbing part, right? You don't do the that part. Right. And, you know, you put the drapes on sometimes and he cuts the next one. And then when he finishes that one, he goes to the next one. It's crazy to me, right? I just can't even imagine. I'm like, well, that's why you're not like answering the phone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because I guess so I should have said I liked, I, I liked the mix of general yeah. practice and the cases that I see. Yeah. Um, both surgery, medicine. I do like radiology too. Um, so I, I guess that that's what, what I should have said. So wh- where did you do your residency? I didn't do oh. a residency. Oh, you didn't do a residency? No, no, oh, I didn't okay. do a residency. So talk about your path to um, becoming yeah. uh, board certified. Yeah, so um, again, so and a lot of people do a, a residency in zoo medicine um, because they are need time to, uh, either they're unfamiliar with a lot of the species or they need time to make the contacts to get, get hired, um, you know, in a zoo position. And so um, for me, I started out with that job. Um, because I grew up with all kinds of non, non-traditional species. Um, so, so I already knew, uh, uh, all the species, those things were, that was normal to me. Now identifying dog breeds, not normal for me, right? That's not something I went to vet school knowing, um, identifying all the different kinds of antelope. I can do that. I could do that at the beginning, understanding all the things it takes to raise and keep, uh, you know, parrots and macaws healthy. I already knew that I could already identify them. So when we had those breed tests at A&M, when we were in vet school, yeah, that was okay for me. <laughs> I was happy for that. Now understanding a dog different, very different. Um, yeah. unless it was an African painted dog. Okay. I knew that. Yeah. Um, so, so I had the, the job, and I, and I could do that. I understood what all that was. So I didn't need to do a residency. But luckily for me, the zoo boards have what's called an experiential pathway. So, uh, and, and the zoo boards, as far as I know, are still the only specialty with a significant peer-reviewed publication requirement in no matter which path you take in order to uh, credential um, to sit the board exam. So first you credential, you submit all your stuff and they evaluate it. And then second, you take an exam. Um, and they're pretty much all of them follow that path as far as the credentialing. Then you take a certifying exam, which is day one. And then the second day of exam is the, uh, I'm sorry, qualifying and then certifying. So you qualify with the day one and then you certify with the day two. It is two days of exams. Um, wow, yeah. Mm-hmm, and it's pretty significant. Um, so the, the zoo boards still have, I think, uh, an abysmal pass rate. So I think it, when I took it, it was like 12 or 14% passed. And that's after credentialing. There were very few that would uh, credential. So, so there's that. And then there's, um, the preventive boards, um, because I'm also board certified in what used to be called public health. It's actually the second oldest specialty in veterinary medicine, which most people don't know. The pathologist beat us to uh, creation by like two months. So that one is infectious disease, public administration, environmental toxins, and um, disaster response, and food safety, and parasites, and that sort of thing. So epidemi- um, a lot of it, uh, more epidemiology. In fact, work, right? Yeah. In fact, epi is one uh, section of the uh, board exam for them. And um, it is 
and it is also a subspecialty within that one that you can do after you've been board board certified by them for a couple of years. So yeah, so that one is is also, um, but they have like what most other board specialties have, which is a like a sixty to sixty five percent pass rate um, for most test takers. Yeah, I mean. It- Public health, um, epidemiology, mm-hmm. those are terms that have been in the news quite a bit oh. um, this past year, yes. right? Yeah. <laughs> Can't forget that. Because I don't think the general public necessarily uh, thinks of a veterinarian as part of public health. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, can you speak to that role of, of a veterinarian and how we, um, what we bring to the table? Yeah, I actually... I actually worked full-time in a public health department. I worked for the Florida Department of Health, and I still am an intermittent federal um, health employee as part of the National Veterinary Response Team under um, the Department of Health and Human Services. So veterinarians have had a role in public health since, gosh, I think the 1800s. Because one of the things that's the underpinning of the social fabric for being an American <laughs> and then in the United States is the fact that we have such a robust public health system and people don't see it. Because you, if you have a good public health system, you really shouldn't know it's there. But things like when you go to the grocery store and you purchase meat or, uh, or gosh, even, even canned foods, the fact that you... You just buy that, take it on home, and you know if you cook it properly, it's 100% safe for you to eat. Um, The fact that you uh, go to McDonald's and you can get something takeout and you know it's safe. We don't think of our food as ever unsafe. Um, But if you've ever uh, lived or worked in other countries, as I have, it's not that way. It's not that way at all. Um, you know, you, you buy your food from a certain, certain places and other places you don't, or you eat from these vendors, um, or you don't, uh, because they're not safe. Um, and so the fact that, um, foodborne illness in this country is investigated all the way back to the head of lettuce in this row on this farm out of this state, that doesn't happen in other countries like it does here. Uh, so that's all definitely that's something. Yeah, definitely something that we we take for granted, mm-hmm. right? Is is the food safety in this country mm-hmm. uh, something we don't think about? If something needs to be have a recall, we have systems in place for that. And like you said, veterinarians are behind the scenes working. Uh, yeah. with that. I was gonna say, like when Ebola came to this country. No, go ahead. You know, with that um, unfortunate. Um, situation with that that uh, poor man um, and uh, that came from Liberia and was in Dallas and was diagnosed with Ebola during the 2014-15 massive outbreak of Ebola in Africa. The director of my Department of Health, my phone rang and I was like, "Okay, I mean, I answered." And I'm like, "Hey, man, how's it going?" Right? Because I knew him. Um, and he said, "Hey," he said, "So you're on speaker?" And I was like, "Wow, all right," which means clean it up, Chatfield, and. Uh, mm-hmm. He's like, I'm here with so-and-so and so-and-so, and these were all people with big titles. And we're just kind of wondering, what, what do you know about Ebola? Because physicians in this country weren't really trained on diseases like Ebola because they're not here. But veterinarians were. Like, we know about it, right? Right. Because that's a zoonotic disease. We know about it. And I knew a lot about it because I'd been working with um, the Department of Homeland Security on uh, <laughs> um terrorism as it might relate to uh, malicious introduction of a pathogen into the United States. And so that's, that's an interesting thing. So then you find the veterinarian 
providing continuing education lectures to all of the physicians and medical staff of human hospitals on Ebola and influenza and the Zika virus and all these things that are um, in the headlines, in the headlines. Yeah, it certainly has made the headlines this year. And I think Mm -hmm. uh, more and more people can appreciate that many of these new emerging diseases actually first come from animals. They're circulating in the animal population and veterinarians are on the ground um, investigating these things and know about um, these disease processes. And we can offer this information to others in in the health field, which comes to the whole one health, one health concept, right? Right. Right. Which, um, which like if you grew up on a farm, like I did one health is like Tuesday afternoon, but apparently this huge shift in paradigm for the world at large. Um, and, and started like 25 years ago. Um, I think it's interesting. And that's, that brings me back to like why I think that becoming a veterinarian is one of the most useful, um, vocational degrees. Cause really veterinary school is just high end vocational training is all it is. And so even if they take away your license, even if, you know, you move to a new country or what have you, there is, they can't take away what you know. Right. right? Because that, that, that's why education is truly priceless. And there is no more broad-based and generally applicable education than a veterinary degree. Because we don't understand organ systems in a vacuum. We understand them as part of the whole. And we don't understand um, human health in a vacuum. We understand human health when it interfaces with animals. And recognizing and making recommendations on how people can continue to live safely with the animals they love for a very long time, that's our whole role in society. And so that's why if you're an undergrad, no matter what major you're in, you can still find your way to vet school very successfully. Um, So as long as you try as hard as you can and are successful in whatever path you're on, the vet school path will always be there. Yeah, and that's what got me. What you just described in the last two minutes is really what got me excited about veterinary medicine. Mm -hmm. It was just so eye-opening to me. So I appreciate you uh, bringing that point. Uh, before we end the podcast, I just wanted to end with, because I know you have another role, mm-hmm. which is you're involved with the admissions process at the University of Florida. Yep. Could you just, um, you know, for our listeners, can you describe your role in that process? Sure. Sure. So um, so I am an external practitioner invited to uh, sit on their admissions committee, and I love it. I think it's a wonderful thing that, um, that su- some vet schools do, which is involve practitioners who are outside the university system. Um, I, I feel like it's a privilege um, that they invite me because there's nothing that I feel like I can do to have more impact on the future of, of our profession. And so I take it very seriously. Um, so I start uh, at the beginning of the cycle with um, reviewing packets. So that Vemcast packet, yeah, people actually read all that stuff you write. Um, and then um, after, there, so there's a first cut made with just straight numbers, right? And then there's a cut made after your packet is reviewed and you get a score. And then we interview and then there's a final cut made. Um, so through the packet review, I don't look at names because I, I don't, I, I try to, you can never eliminate bias, but I try to 
um, cut off bias from being allowed to influence my assessment of a, of someone's application. So I don't look at the names because they can indicate all kinds of things, right? Your name says a lot about you. Um, so I don't look at names. I don't want to know if it's a male or a female or, or something else. I, I don't look at the pictures because I don't want to have any idea. I don't look at where you're living because I don't want any sort of geographic bias. And I just look at what you've told me because I can't know it if you didn't tell it to me. So at the end of the packet review, I'm just trying to get a sense of who you are, what you've done, how it's impacted you, and why you think you ought to be a vet. And at the end of my packet review, if I don't can't figure that out, that's not good, right? Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and it doesn't mean everyone has a perfect path. And in fact, people because people will ask me like, well, what are you looking for on a packet? Well, I am looking for good grades, sure, but that doesn't mean every grade has to be good. If there's a reason, right? Like if there's a reason that your grade was a C, you know, is it because your arm fell off and you were going through reattachment surgeries? I mean, I'm I'm being metaphorical here, right? Right. But if you had something happen, if you don't tell me about it in the application, how do I know? So I'm presuming everything was peachy keen when you made a C in biochem, right? I mean, I don't know. Yeah, so um, really, really good insight for our listeners is, you know, if you if you have something like that on your application to really let the um, admissions committee know about it. Or, um, you know, if, if you're a, a, you didn't come right out of undergrad, right? But in undergrad, may, maybe you didn't do so well because, you know, you just didn't. These, these were choices you made, right? And you didn't understand the gravity of them at the time. That's, that's fair. But then you did something else and you did it really, really, really well. Tell me that. Tell me you recognize, ah, this is why I made these choices in undergrad. But now, because um, improvement is also rewarded, right? So I have a friend. She's She applied to vet school. And she was older. She'd had like multiple different careers, all super interesting. Um, she was older. I'm going to say older, like 35. Um, and she had really crappy grades in undergrad. I mean, like embarrassingly bad grades, barely made it out, had been on academic probation. Then she went and got a master's because she had opportunity to, she wouldn't have picked it, but she had opportunity to through her job. And she had like a 4.0 in her master's and she's applying to vet school. And she told me, she was like, I don't know. Do you think they'll consider it? Whatever. And I'm like, yeah, but tell them that, tell them you were a bonehead when you were 20. Right. Right. Um, but now you, it took you a while, but you decided this is what you want to do and you can be successful. Yeah. I mean, she got in. She got no, in. That's, that's great, great advice and insights. Um, so you, you sit on the interview process too? You're yep. interviewing students. Any interviewing tips? Because I know this is yep. something that students really stress out about. It's really stressful. Not only, you know, getting the application in and Mm -hmm. making sure everything, you know, you've dotted your I's and crossed your T's, Mm -hmm. but then you're waiting and you get a letter and you, and it says, congratulations, you have an interview. So now they now that's a whole different level of stress uh, for them. Any tips for them? Yeah. uh, So I had bad interview when I went to vet school. Um, I had two interview offers and one I totally bombed. I mean, super bad. And then the other one, obviously I did well because I got in, right? Um. People are always nervous. They're like, what if I don't know the answer? What is the answer? Is there an answer? No, there's your answer. 
And so what I'm looking for in an interview is, do you have some sort of critical thinking process that you use? Because that's important when you go to professional school. So if, you know, if you're asked about some sort of um, controversial event or controversial topic and you have an opinion, because everyone does, we're humans, right? Then how did you arrive at that? Because even if it, and I have, I've recommended for admission, lots of students whose opinion is totally the opposite of mine, right? But they had some method by which when I say, oh, that's interesting. How did you arrive at that? It's not the answer, right. but how you arrive at that yeah. answer and that process that you should be showing the committee and whoever is interviewing you, uh, right. what your thinking process is in arriving at, at, at decisions and, and, and these answers. Exactly. Exactly. Like, um, yeah, because so, so let's say um, you volunteered at shelters. That's all of your experiences at shelters, which, which is, can be okay, or it can be really not good. Because if you come away from that experience, not having formed your own opinion about the issues that face shelters or the issues that face veterinarians in private practice or animals in society, if you've just decided to parrot someone else's opinion, you're not ready. You're not ready. Because we want veterinarians, right, with critical thinking skills and, a, and an emotional maturity about them. And so that's all we're looking for. And that's the other thing. The only other thing to remember when you're in an interview is not only is there no wrong answer, there's your answer. And number two, the purpose of the interview is for the interviewers to get to know you. There is no other expert in the room on the topic except you. Right? That's a good way to look at it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Definitely a, a good mindset to have going in. Yeah. Um, anything else you'd like to share with our, our listeners? Any last mm -hmm. words of wisdom uh, before we go? One more thing. Number one, thank you so much for inviting me on the Oh, absolutely. Podcast. It's been my pleasure. I'm totally blown away by our conversation and by your willingness to even just uh, sit down and, and really talk to this group of students. So yeah. um, awesome. Well, thanks for that. Um, and then the other thing that people uh, frequently ask about that we didn't touch on, because um, it's another giant topic, is debt, the cost of vet school. Um, and uh, I think that's interesting. And I so if you're an undergrad... Uh, you see all these numbers and everyone talks about it and this and that. Um, it, it, it is what it is. Now, I think you should take it into consideration when you're, when you're deciding which school you're going to go to, because where you go to vet school isn't as important as the education you get out of it. And it is up to you at that point in graduate school to get the education that's going to prepare you the best for your future, whatever that looks like. And so you don't need to go to school X. You need to go to a school. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so you may need to make that decision. Now, it may be that there's some kind of something at school X that you think you will will legitimately provide you an advantage in the in the path you see ahead. Okay, then go for it. But if school X is just because you feel like you're going to be better because you came from school X and it's worth that additional money, you need to reconsider that, right? Everyone I knew graduated from vet school with debt. I graduated with $100,000 of debt because my parents didn't pay for any of it. And everyone has a different path when they get out. I paid mine off, right? Five years out of school, paid it off. That doesn't happen that way for everybody, but it can happen that way for you. So, so if you're considering that the debt is the big problem, Talk to some people, talk to veterinarians, and if it's still a problem for you, pick something else. Go be something else. 
because there are ways to pay it off. There are ways to pay for vet school. There are lots of ways to pay for vet school if it's what you want to do. So don't, don't spend too much time focused on that, but consider it and then move on. But beyond that, um, wow, if you're considering vet school, like I'm, I am truly biased. So take it with a grain of salt and use your critical thinking skills. But I mean, there's just no better career. Like I'm so, I feel so lucky every day that I accidentally became a veterinarian. I can't even imagine being something else. Um, but in 10 years that could, I could change that opinion, but seems unlikely. (laughs) But that to me though, it's, it's what made that price tag worth it because I know there's so many things I could be doing with this degree to me. It, it was worth it. And like you said, you can find ways to, to pay off that debt. Well, I just want to thank you again for being here. This has been another episode of the Academic Veterinarian Podcast. With me today was Dr. Jennifer Chatfield. For more information on Dr. Jennifer's work, you can visit her website at drjendevet.com. You can also check out her YouTube channel. She's got some great educational and entertaining content. So we'll call that veterinary edutainment. Yes. Um, can't get enough of it. So be sure to check out our YouTube channel. Dr. Jen, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you for having me. Um, and I hope to see some of your listeners coming through um, as our newest professional colleagues. So good luck, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Academic Veterinarian Podcast. You can find all the resources and links discussed on today's program in the episode's show notes. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast and we'd love to hear from you. So send us your comments, questions, or suggestions for future episodes to theacademicvet at gmail.com. Bye.